We are starting the show today, though, with a pretty major update from Vancouver Police. As you've been hearing on the news, they recovered about $75,000 in merchandise. This was during a pre-Christmas shoplifting enforcement campaign. They went through uh, 195 arrests. Uh, They say 330 criminal charges are, are, are being laid at this point. And there were some pretty scary moments as well. 23 incidents in which a weapon was used. That was the announcement earlier today and VPD now have announced as well they've made two pretty significant arrests in a sting operation. This one was targeting the downtown east side but taking a look at all of that stolen merchandise being sold at the various markets. Well, will this make a difference when it comes to shoplifting and how are business owners feeling? Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Nolan Marshall III, the Executive Director of the Downtown Business Improvement Association. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. What is your response just to hearing some of those numbers that what police have done at this point as far as making these arrests and now with the criminal charges laid? It's 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 like most of the data points over the last 20 months. There's some uh, encouraging news in that data uh, and some discouraging news. The, the discouraging news is that this happens in our community all the time. Uh, And so to see sort of the illumination of what our business owners are faced with, especially over the last 21 months, uh, is concerning, and that's a concerning data point. Uh, The positive is that the police department and VPD is doing something about it uh, and have been able to correct uh, this issue over the last couple of months. Uh, Yeah, and the numbers, I mean, it does seem like this should make a huge dent, but is that one of the concerns that even with making arrests and with trying to get maybe the most prolific offenders off the street, there are still going to be people doing this and it's still going to be a big problem? Well, we know we need a sustained effort. Uh, The shoplifting, the violent shoplifting that we see, some of the property crime, it's not seasonal. But what we've seen often is that before the holidays, we'll see these targeted approaches or we'll see them Uh, once or twice a year. And what we really need is a sustained approach to deal with this. This is something that our businesses face uh, quite frequently, and they don't have the the sustained response from the VPD uh, to deal with it. We talked a while ago about when the police department said they were going to kind of shift some of the foot patrols and put more foot patrols to make them more visible, specifically in the downtown core, kind of the Granville Mall area and the West End. Have you been hearing from business owners or has anything changed as far as a positive outcome from that? We've seen a few more foot foot patrols uh, over the last several weeks. Uh, And so that's always helpful. The more eyes uh, we can have on the street, especially when we know we're missing so many of our tourists and so many of our office workers, where the population will normally police itself. You have so many people on the street uh, that you don't typically see this this type of incident. But in the last 21 months, we haven't had that population on the street. So it's, it's been helpful to have the increased police presence over the last couple of weeks. But we really need to make sure that it's something that we can sustain going forward. What are you hearing from businesses then as far as what they've had to do in in trying to stop this and protecting not only their businesses, whatever the business might be, but protecting goods and protecting staff? Well, staffing is the the biggest challenge. And oftentimes we think about uh, these crimes as sort of victimless crimes or we think this is just a byproduct of poverty in the community. 
But what we're seeing is we're seeing businesses that are having a difficult time hiring staff right now because the staff don't want to work uh, in downtown stores if they feel like they're not going to be safe. And so that's the biggest concern. We're seeing that a lot in the retail space and in the service space right now. But as we try to get workers back uh, downtown in January and the new year and the spring, we have to make sure that it's a safe environment for everyone where this issue of worker choice and them choosing uh, to either work remotely or to work in different retail locations that aren't seeing uh, the kind of activities that we've seen in downtown is going to be a, a really concerning problem because, again, if we don't get the workers back because they don't feel safe, it'll be a snowballing impact on, on what we're seeing. And I, I know uh, you have worked in other cities uh, in, in similar roles and obviously different in that we're dealing with a pandemic and have been dealing with this pandemic while you've been in this the current role. But have you seen other cities or other examples of other places that have had to deal with this type of property crime or with the prolific shoplifters and have come up with other solutions? Sure. It's, it's something that's really been exacerbated because of the, the pandemic. Again, when you lose that daytime population, whether it be from tourists or office workers uh, downtown, you do you do sort of see this a bit happening everywhere. Uh, some of the solutions are, are less obvious than others. So having more police on the street uh, is clearly something that has an impact. But changing the way that we do our public lighting is also something that has an impact, especially when you think about the number of crimes that happen overnight. So we talk about creating pedestrian-friendly, biking-friendly realms, but we still currently light the street and the roadway uh, and not uh, providing the sort of light to business frontages and to the sidewalks that would be uh, meaningful. And so there there are some solutions. Uh, I've seen some communities offer grants for small businesses to provide uh, overnight shutters to protect windows, uh, and so there, there are things that we can do that don't uh, that don't get us into the root causes: mental health, uh, housing, those sorts of things, addiction. There's some things that we can do in the next two, three months uh, around placemaking and around support for small businesses uh, that I think would be helpful. Right. And you've kind of that's I'm glad that you brought that up because it is there are so many different things going on here. Really, when we talk about it, there there might be some that are there are opportunistic criminals that are doing that. But when we're also dealing with mental health and addiction, we're dealing with housing, a housing crisis. So with with more homeless people, it all kind of it's not as if we're looking for one one particular answer that's going to, to fix everything. But at the same time, we can't expect our business owners and 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 workers in the community community to feel unsafe and to be in that position either. Right. This is a, the solution isn't an a la carte uh, solution. You can't just choose one path or the, or the other. You have to do all of it. And so I think it's important that we address those root causes around addiction, around poverty, around homelessness. Uh, but it's also important that we do things like properly write, uh, light the public realm, like provide support for small businesses who uh, are having their windows smashed overnight. So if we can help support them by getting them uh, some overnight shutters and, and providing more uh, police on the street as well. That, that's an immediate thing that we can do that, in addition to the long-term systemic problems, will have a dramatic impact. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this. Thank you for having me. 
Well, I know a lot of people will be traveling, maybe going to see family this holiday season. Just anecdotally, I've been hearing a lot of people talk about that. It was a topic at this morning's news conference as well on flooding and the roads that have been damaged in BC. People wondering if they will be able to get to their destination. Also more people traveling by airplane. And that means there are a lot of questions about what exactly is needed if you are traveling into or out of YVR. Well, joining me now is Robin McVicker, VP of Passenger Journey at YVR Airport. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for doing this because uh, I think even people who have traveled uh, in some cases are getting a bit caught off guard by not having all of the papers in one place or everything you need. So let's go through what people need to know. We know that travelers must be vaccinated to be at YVR or any other airport. What should someone make sure they have and how? what form should that be in when they're coming to YVR to get a flight? Yeah, absolutely. So everybody that is going to depart from a Canadian airport needs to be vaccinated. The the best standard is the Canadian travel vaccination, proof of vaccination, which actually is available on the BC Health Gateway. If you have your BC um, app, you can just download the Canadian one as well. And that makes it super easy. So we recommend everybody have that handy as they are going to be traveling through the airport. And if somebody shows up with a paper copy rather than it on the app, is that a problem? It's recommended that you have it on the app. I think there are situations where somebody may not have it on the app and they may do a paper copy and the airline will work with you on how to move forward. All right. So that's step one. Should you be allowing for more time as far as uh, does the whole process take longer? You know what? I, I, I would recommend that people do only for peace of mind. What we know right now, Jill, is that there's a lot to think about when you're traveling. And I know everybody's excited to get traveling and we're so happy to see everybody again in the airport. But it takes a little more planning, a little more thought. Not only do you have to make sure you've got your vaccination information, but you have to understand about the requirements as to where you're going. Right. So let's talk about that because different destinations have different entry requirements. So is somebody going to be stopped? And we'll use YVR as the example. Would somebody be stopped at YVR and flagged if they didn't do their homework or didn't have the requirements for where they're going? Yeah, so it's really important because usually it's the airline that will check to make sure that they have the requirements for entry into another country. So say somebody's coming back from London and they're coming into Canada Um, the airline has to check before they even get on that flight from London if they have all of the right entry requirements to come into Canada, and that's before they board. So same thing here. If we have somebody that's headed, say you're going to Palm Springs for the weekend, you need to make sure that you are ready to have the new U.S. requirement, which is uh, a 24-hour PCR or rapid antigen test on the day of your departure before you're even allowed into the States now, and that just started today. Right. So that that started today. And and will that be something then you're not going to be getting on a flight unless you have that done? Yeah, that's correct. All right. And so that's that's the PCR test or the antigen test. So depending on how people do it, I know people can do it, get the the test, the switch health test that you do at home. Uh, Is there still an option that people can book and get those tests done at YVR? You bet. We've got four different places at the airport or near the airport that people can get different tests for departure. Um, We've got CVM Medical right underneath the Fairmont Hotel that has a a really quick turnaround, 20, 30 minutes for a rapid antigen test. And then inside the hotel, they have another um, outfit that has rapid PCR and rapid antigen tests. 
So there's lots of options for people to do it as they come to the airport. And do they have to book the time slot in advance? Yes, it is recommended that you do book those time slots in advance. And on our website, you can find all the information about what departure testing options are available, and that can link to the different locations. All right. Uh, You talked about the fact that as of today, that new 24-hour requirement, that's 24 hours within boarding time of a flight to go to the United States. Now, coming back, can you walk us through, uh, as far as I know, it's still international destinations with the exception of the states, but coming back, there is now going to be mandatory testing for everybody, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's a couple um, fun intricacies in this. Number one, everybody that's coming into Canada still needs to have a 72-hour pre-departure test, um, a pre-departure negative PCR test. Before they can even get on the flight, they have to have that, except if they are going to the U.S. within a 72-hour time frame. That was recently dropped. So people coming into Canada, let's go to somebody coming from London. They're flying into Canada. They need to have a 72-hour pre-departure test and fill in their ArriveCan app, which collects all their vaccination information, their testing information, and all their public health information available. That needs to be filled in before they board. We're also recommending that people take the time then to pre-register for the tests that they will get on arrival at the airport. And that means that any arriving passengers will be tested on arrival um, immediately and in the future. And we're just moving to 100% of uh, arriving passengers testing on arrival at the airport. Right. But isn't it still exempt if you're coming in from the States? That's correct, Jill. Yeah, the States right now is exempt. It's only international travelers um, beyond the U.S. that need to have that arrivals test. However, there is a, uh, a mandatory random selection of some U.S. travelers that will continue to have a random test upon arrival, and that's to help the government with their general screening of variants coming in. So we just don't want people to think that it's no U.S. travelers because there are some random travelers that will be selected. Okay. Uh, so, so the bottom line there is everybody, no matter where you've been, where you're coming back from, everybody has to have that negative that's the PCR test within the 72 hours. Is it within 72 hours of arriving in Canada? It's within 72 hours of departing, of depart of your departure flight. Okay, when you're coming back. Yeah, when you're coming back. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you need that. Uh, the only exception is, and so, and then you also need to register for your test, your PCR test at the airport. Only yeah. you don't have. Sorry, you don't have to do that though if you're coming from the states. That's right. And, you know, I, I recognize that this is kind of confusing and it's just it, there's a lot talking. There's a lot going on. So let me let's use examples, because honestly, this is one of the ways that we figured it out. So we have people flying in from Sydney now. Our amazing Air Canada Sydney flights have started again just this week. People will come in. They will have to take a Canadian will have to take a 72 hour pre-departure test. They'll have to have their arrive can app. They want to pre-register for the test that they'll take on arrival. And then once they arrive in Canada, they will come, they will go through the border, and they will take an arrivals test. And then they will go to their place of quarantine, their home or their hotel, and they'll wait for the result of that test, usually within 24 hours. Okay, so there is that, then you have to go and isolate. And my guess is you, because I have done the Arrive Can app where you have to put in a quarantine plan. So that's where you would, I guess, put in your home address or whatever the address is of the place where you're going to isolate while you wait for those test results. That's exactly right. They call it the approved quarantine area. So that's when we talk about everything's in Arrive Can. That will be there as well. 
If you are flying home to, say, Vancouver, but say your flight goes through Toronto, do you do that in Toronto then or do you do it in Vancouver? So the connection, so say you're flying from London and you're going through Toronto, you would do the test in, um, in Toronto or you may be handed a take-home test. You would then uh, come home and take that test immediately and you would quarantine until you get the result. Okay. It just, Toronto, uh, and, and, you know, we will do this as well. Because we only have limited capacity for testing, we are absolutely increasing our, our capacity at the airport. We've already increased it. Um, and we have a little bit more real estate than some of the other Canadian airports to actually have testing on site. But when it gets too busy, when we have too many flights in at the same time, some people will be handed take-home kits where they will have to go home and do the test at home. And then also, are those the same kind of time turnaround as far as getting results? It takes a little longer because you will have to call a courier and with all the supply chain issues right now, we're trying to make sure that we can do as many tests on site as possible so that we can make sure people get on their way quickly. Hmm, interesting. Do you anticipate though, so if somebody arrives and is ready, they understand they have to get the test, the arrival test and isolate until you get those results. You can imagine a scenario where if somebody has said, okay, we're at capacity, we're over capacity, you have to take this take-home test, but it's going to potentially take longer. Uh, Somebody might say, well, no, I don't want that. I want to get the test done right here. I want to be able to do this in the quickest way possible. I can totally understand that. I mean, that, that, that is one of the challenges that we're facing. That's why over the next two weeks, we're going to be doubling our testing capacity here at the airport as well as registration capacity. And the other key thing that we're asking people to help us with the flow is if people pre-register for the test, um, it it absolutely speeds up the process enormously. And and pre-registering for the test, then what if somebody is concerned or if their flight's delayed? Does that just does the airport know or get notified? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, we we follow all of the um, flow is based on the flight schedule. So we know what's happening. All right. And as far as I don't know if you have the answer to this question, but will people still be able to go through the airport using Nexus? Yes, they will. Yeah, okay. uh, they can they can continue to do that. It's a it's a dedicated line. Um, and then they go through uh, through to the same testing area, though, like it, it's they go through the same testing processes. So they may be selected for random U.S. if that if that is the case. Uh, and any idea how long the time? I've heard from people, I heard from somebody who, who came home from, I forget where it was, the other day, but but was take, uh, uh, chosen for the random test and said it added about two and a half hours that they were at the airport. Uh, somebody else said it took about four hours. How much time should somebody anticipate that the, the arrival testing is going to take? Yeah, well, that, that's surprising to me because we're not seeing those kinds of delays in Vancouver. I know some of the other airports are facing some of those delays. Um, I had one of our, our team members just came home from London last week, and he was home in North Bend within an hour and five minutes of the whole process. So it can take, um, if there is a, a lot of uh, flights at the same time, so in our peak periods, let's say between 7.30 and 10 in the morning, that's a busy time coming through the airport. So it could take up to an hour for people to process through there. It may take a little longer depending on how many people have pre-registered. But other parts of the day, people will go through pretty quickly. All right. Have we covered anything? I know you said that there's a lot of information on the, the YVR website as well. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to make sure we do? Yes, Jill. You know what? What we're asking people, plan ahead. Know before you go. Make sure you look at the, the information as to what you need for the arrival as well as the, um, when you're going to get to your next destination. And then have some patience. 
we have an entire airport here of people that are so excited to have travelers back again. People are back to work. They're ready. We're trained. We're ready for people. We're even ready for snow. <laughs> but um, we are ready for people to travel again. Just have some patience with us because we know that the processes take a little longer right now. All right. Robin McVicker, thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through all the new procedures and regulations that are in place. Thank you so much. You bet, Jill. Happy to answer questions anytime. Well, if you were listening to the show on Friday, you would have heard us talking with Len Saunders, who is an immigration lawyer in Blaine with Blaine Immigration, about a release that was put out from the border. This was put out by U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and it was talking about using the facial recognition technology, saying that an imposter was interceptive, intercepted sorry, trying to cross the border from Canada into the United States on November 26th and saying the incident occurred when an officer detected a facial mismatch while processing a passenger in the bus terminal. Upon further investigation, the woman admitted that she was actually using her sister's U.S. passport and COVID-19 vaccination card because she herself had not been vaccinated. The release goes on to say that simplified arrival is an enhanced international arrival process that uses biometric facial comparison technology. Now, Something Len said about how long the United States officials keep the information got us to thinking about privacy. It seems like they have this new kind of feature at the primary booth. So I'm assuming everybody who's entering now, there's going to be a picture taken of them, their face. I guess they have to pull down their mask and they'll take a quick snapshot. And through this new facial recognition software, it'll compare the picture of the person sitting in the vehicle or standing in line inside the building to the actual passport that the officer has swiped through their, uh, I guess, through their computer. It's a fascinating new technology. Let's bring in Anne Kavuki, an executive director at Global Privacy and Security by Design Center at Ryerson University. And thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that the United States, uh, Len had said too, that they had kind of taken the quiet time when the border was closed and used that to ramp up the technology and bring in more of this facial recognition technology. What are your thoughts on that? Well, let me start by saying there's always a risk when you assume someone else's identity, as this individual had. I think she said she used her sister's. Uh, passport and, and uh, facial image would obviously be different. So she took quite a risk at um, using someone else's identifiers and got caught. So th- the reason I'm raising that is because the kind of facial recognition being used, um, as you described it in the U.S., it's called one-to-one facial recognition, which means your facial image or a, a picture of your face, but usually your facial image is compared to a picture of your facial image contained in a passport or some other device. And that's a one-to-one comparison, live to picture. Yes, you match, you're free to go. That is actually a far more privacy-protective form of technology than the usual kind of facial recognition, which is called one-to-many, which compares your facial image to thousands of, you know, um, people of interest, bad guys, etc., out there. So I'm not trying to suggest that everyone should be in favor of this, but it is, in fact, very privacy protective because it's only your image that is compared to your face uh, picture on your passport or some document you have. And if that matches, you're good to go. 
All right. And they, in the release that they put out, too, they also said that uh, foreign travelers who have gone to the U.S. previously with the new the use of this new technology in the past, if maybe you had to provide fingerprints, you won't have to do that anymore, that your identity will be confirmed using this facial biometric process. Is that better, yeah. do you think, as far as privacy? It, it, it is better because, as I said, one to one. And it's the same if you have a Nexus card. Uh, in Canada going into the U.S. where when we used to be able to travel easily, I have a Nexus card. And what a Nexus card does, or global uh, entry, it compares my live face at the airport to the picture of my face that they have on my passport. And it's a one-to-one comparison. It's actually very privacy protective. And if there's a match, then I'm good to go. So that is far better than comparing your facial image to thousands and hundreds of thousands and one to many comparisons are very problematic. They're inaccurate, result in many, many false positives. What are your thoughts on the information itself? Because it's different what the United States, what the U.S. Customs and Border Protection is doing as far as storage of the the photos, saying that, that new photo right. comparisons of U.S. citizens will be deleted within 12 hours, but photo comparisons of most foreign nationals will be stored in a secure U.S. Department of Homeland Security system. And one could question, why is that the case? If they're only retaining the facial images of American citizens for, I think you said, 12 hours, why would they retain uh, non-American comparisons for, it sounds indefinitely? So that's a very good question to raise. Why would they need that? Yeah, and, and I guess, too, do, if, you, if you take it at face value that they, they're doing that, they want to know who everybody who's been in their country at any given time, and that's why they're keeping the information. But would, Yes, and, and, obviously, and, and if I could add yeah. to what you just said, that leads to a great deal of surveillance, because if they're retaining this data, the whole point of the facial image is to you know, confirm that you know, I am Ann Kazuchian, as I claim to be. But once I've made that comparison and everything is fine, why would they retain that data indefinitely other than for purposes of surveillance? I mean, could it be also that if somebody goes into the United States for nefarious purposes, they then have that information or they know exactly when that person came in and they've got that? It's possible, Jill. But the thing is that that casts hundreds of thousands of regular law-abiding um, non-U.S. visitors into the same cast as these potential bad guys, and I would object to that. And I, and I mean, in a scenario like this, there's obviously the choice that somebody can choose if they don't want to be part of this, they can choose not to go to the United States and then the United States <sighs> can, can choose to, to put these measures in if they, if they so desire. But, uh, <sighs> but is that concerning? Well, I, mean, I think it is concerning. I think for, for everyone, uh, the U.S., I think, does not want to discourage visitors to the U.S. for all the reasons in terms of business and travel, etc. And the same with people who want to visit the U.S. and visit friends or family or whatever. So I, I don't think putting the brakes on this kind of travel is, is a positive measure in any way. Does it kind of go in that, especially now, given the pandemic and given vaccine certificates and that, are we are we giving up even more of perhaps what little privacy we, we still had? 
Well, certainly with vaccine passports, without a doubt, it's requiring people to not only be vaccinated, but then present that information, which is sensitive health data, present it and have it retained wherever you've presented it. When you match that with geolocation data, the potential for tracking is enormous. They're calling it vaccine surveillance. So you're absolutely right that we should object to that kind of tracking. Is it a lot different than, I, I get that it's health information, which, which makes it different, but is it a lot more invasive, do you think, than what somebody would have done even just to get a Nexus card? Oh, yes, I think it is much more invasive. I mean, for a Nexus card, as I mentioned, I have one, and it's not a big deal. You present yourself, you present your passport, if it's your facial image live, uh, matches your facial image on the passport, you're good to go. That's very different from what you just described. And and going back to to what you'd said too about the the one to one facial recognition that it that it is only comparing you against yourself. Um, are there other places that that do the kind of the more invasive or the the one to many that 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 you raise the issues with? Um, I'm not aware in terms of travel. I mean, certainly in the UK, for example, you go to England. There's cameras everywhere, and they pick up your facial images and they use facial recognition extensively, but they have an 81% false positive rate. So 81% of their matches are false. It's crazy. Hmm. That seems like a a high false positive rate. (laughs) It is very high, but they did this in Detroit um, uh, last year as well. They found that they had a 96% false positive rate. They stopped using it. Is it safe to say that as we get back traveling yeah. and people uh, people get back to doing that, we're, we're being our facial face, uh, this kind of technology is being used on. I mean, I guess it depends where you go, but that this type of technology yeah. is being used on us much more than we're even aware. Absolutely. There are cameras everywhere. They capture your facial images and invariably they are retained and used indefinitely. So what recourse does anybody have other than never setting foot outside your door? Well, these days we have to wear a mask, which for, for non-health related purposes can, can serve to protect your privacy. <laughs> Who knew there was the, the silver lining side to, to wearing that mask? Exactly. Um, I just wanted to ask you one more thing. I know in the release again that we wanted to talk to you because of this particular case at the the Canada-U.S. land crossing. It does say that if foreign nationals or U.S. travelers, if they don't want to be part of the facial recognition to provide biometrics, they can opt out and they can notify an officer as they approach oh. the primary inspection point. Um, they can, okay. It says that they will then be required to present a valid travel document for inspection and it will be processed consistent with the already long-established process for admission to the U.S. Uh, So I would imagine that's important that people know if you you say something, you can opt out. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Jill, because that is a very positive opportunity for people to make that choice. And it gives them a choice, which is wonderful. So I applaud that. All right. Well, and it is always great talking with you about (laughs) these issues. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure as always, Jill. Thank you. Yes, we are lightening the mood just a little bit in this final half hour of the program. And this is a new idea that takes some space at some local breweries that maybe isn't being used all of the time and finds that it could, in fact, be quite easily transformed into a boardroom. So joining us to talk a little bit more about this 
is, uh, well, we have two guests joining us. Nick Menzies is the owner of Brew Hall. Nick, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, hi, thank you. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, Megumi Mizuno is also here, Chief of Staff at Traction on Demand. Megumi, thanks so much for taking the time as well. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with you, uh, Megumi, to talk a little bit about what Traction on Demand is and how you came up with this working model. So Traction on Demand, we are the world's largest independent um, Salesforce implementation partner. And we're based out of Burnaby. And like majority of businesses around the world, uh, pre-pandemic, we had everyone working in traditional office space. We Once the pandemic hit, everyone kind of packed up their shop and went home. Found that people like the ability to work from home, they don't have to get in a car or get on a bus and travel that 45 minutes, an hour to an office, but they really missed um, connecting with their fellow Tractionites, we call our employees Tractionites. So we thought, we also knew that local businesses were really suffering through the pandemic, especially coffee shops, restaurants, places like that, and thought, how could we bring us back out to the community so people could work where they live or near where they live. And so our CEO and some others came up with this idea to try and partner with local businesses to help maximize their underutilized space. So breweries kind of made sense. Many of them don't get busier until later in the the evening when we're kind of wrapping up. So if we could help offset their costs for the space that they're already paying for but not really using, then plus plus for everybody. And then our employees can also hopefully find a new local business to spend their, their money at and kind of spread the word and help those, uh, those businesses kind of gain a new, new um, audience. All right. And Nick, I'll bring you in as well. Nick Menzies, the owner of Brew Hall. Uh, Nick, I, I've been there a few times. For anyone who's not familiar, Brew Hall is on uh, East 2nd Avenue in Vancouver. You have a huge space. So was that what was attractive in this, in that it would be really difficult, I would think, to keep it filled the entire time? So has this partnership helped with that? Uh, yeah, it, uh, it, uh, it absolutely has. Um, you know, since we, we started this a few weeks ago, uh, you know, depending on the day of the week, we've, you know, been seeing, you know, 10 to 15 tractionites coming in and, uh, and working from, uh, from brew hall there. Um, and it's been a really positive relationship. And, and do they use a specific space in the brewery or how does that work? Uh, yeah, we, um, with, with, with our particular room, you know, we have about 12,000 square feet of space. Uh, so we have an upper level that we uh, that we really just use uh, for uh, for private events during the weekdays, and then it's open for regular business on like Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. But uh, is really underutilized uh, during the daytime, especially. Uh, so um, so just having more people in the building, and they come and you know they have lunch, and when they finish up, they have a beer with their team and and things like that. It works out really well for us. No, it sounds uh, it sounds great. Uh, Megumi, can you talk a bit to that? Does it have to be a space like Brew Hall or one of the larger brewery spaces, or is it kind of tailored to fit how many people in a particular company might be looking for this? Yes, we're completely flexible. So we have some smaller spaces where we can only have maybe about 10 to 15 people, larger spaces like Brew Hall, which could technically probably fit 
40 people upstairs. And because we are trying to partner with as many local businesses as possible, we can offer a variety of, of space um, configurations. And and the idea of the breweries, was it because, like you said, you kind of touched on this in the beginning, that the model itself lends to be often busy at some times, but not busy at others. Is that why you've kind of started this with, with breweries? Yes, because we started looking at restaurants and restaurants that are open for lunch and dinner, they need to kind of rotate their uh, customers a little bit more frequently to make the money so but breweries lots of times people don't kind of come in until you know three four five o'clock in the afternoon so it kind of worked out perfectly where they have this space that's just kind of sitting there and we could use it to to work until they have um, customers who want to come in and enjoy beer and some and some food all right and nick does it change anything for you as far as noise levels or do you have to do anything differently when you have the workers that are taking over that space um the the impact on us hasn't um hasn't been negative in 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 any um uh in any way um you know sometimes we just have to uh unlock the door a little bit earlier than uh than we normally would but uh but we do have staff on site uh you know pretty early in the morning to uh, to prepare everything for the day, and we're brewing beer all the time, and that that cycle uh, starts actually quite early in the morning. So our brewers on site at you know seven thirty eight in the morning, um, and uh, and that. So um, so yeah, it's been a really uh, easy pivot if you consider all the pivots we've made in the last uh, year and a half. So uh, so yeah, it's been really positive, and it's pretty easy for us. Oh, that's that's great. And do you find, too, that you get people in the brewery maybe who wouldn't have come uh, if, if they weren't part of this and it's kind of opened their eyes to uh, an environment that they may not have found in otherwise? Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, we're seeing, uh, I mean, before the pandemic, the, uh, the Tractionites did uh, frequent the, uh, the brew hall fairly, fairly often. So we, we already had um, a relationship that was um, that was just easy to pivot into uh into meeting our, our our own independent needs and you know like Mizumi said it's just uh you know it's a plus plus for both companies and Megumi, do you plan then to branch out into other kinds of businesses or finding other places that would be uh, compatible like breweries are definitely we're always kind of looking for our employees who are kind of out in their own communities to bring um, bring forward any local businesses that may have an empty space. Like sometimes, you know, maybe you've got a front of house it's a gift shop and they, they have all this backspace office that they don't want to use. If they, if it works out where we've got a large, not a large, but a concentration of our tractionites in the area, that could work out. So we're very open to trying different um trying out different arrangements with different types of businesses. We're looking across Canada. Uh, we're going to start looking in Australia and um, in the U.S., places where we have a concentration of employees. So we're just excited to kind of try this and see where it can go. And do you find, too, is it kind of, there are so many people that are still working from home. Is this making it easier for people to come out or to come back to the office? Definitely. So many of our employees don't live close to our headquarters in Burnaby. So instead of them planning this their their commute, they can just 
walk maybe 10 minutes to a local brewery, go work there for half the day if they want, come home, pick up their kids from school, then work in however it is. So we're trying to give different options for our employees to be as flexible as possible so that work isn't their entire life. It's, it's a component of their life, and they're able to find that balance. All right. And Nick, do you plan on, on expanding on this at all? Or how do you see this kind of continuing at Brew Hall? Um, yeah, I, I think that, um, I mean, really, when we set up Brew Hall, we, uh, we did set it up. There's, um, you know, especially on the downstairs level, there's lots of, uh, of, of power outlets and, um, and that to make it uh, easy for people to use uh, the space as, as their third space. And, um, and so, uh, it's something that uh, that I can see going into the future, um, and uh, and other other companies want to get involved, or just um, you, you know, in, independent people or students or anything like that. More people in the hall is always a good thing. All right. Well, thanks both of you so much for coming on and talking about such a positive story on this rather dark, cloudy Monday. Thanks so much, and 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 yeah, thanks for joining us to let people know about this. Thank you so much, Jill. Great talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having us.